Well, uh, if you're visiting with us, this morning we find ourselves again in uh, Genesis. And we are going, spending 10 weeks uh, in the book of Genesis, picking out key passages. And so if you'll turn uh, in your Bibles to Genesis 15, uh, that is where the story of Abraham continues. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the, in the middle of the aisles there. Today we're going to spend our time discussing the covenant made between God and Abraham. We are going to spend some time thinking about how the nature of that covenant affects our lives. And so today I'd, I'd like to start by asking you a question. What was it this week that caused you to question the nature of God? What circumstance did you find yourself in that made you wonder, could God really be like that? For me, it was seeing a dear friend and his family struggle with cancer. Is God really asking them to suffer through this? And then I heard of a campus minister in Washington, D.C. who went missing. Now, thankfully, he's been found, but... When he went missing, it caused me to wonder, is that really how God intends to spread his gospel? I'm sure that you have something like that, too. You know a family member with an illness that's causing suffering. You have a relationship that you're unsure of. Maybe a friendship that's broken, and you wonder if God has the power to heal it. Maybe you aren't sure where the next paycheck is going to come from. You wonder if God can really provide for you. Whatever it is, surely you've had an experience that has made you wonder at the nature of God. The suffering we experience and the reality of our sin often causes us to consider the nature of God. And depending on how bad the circumstance is, we're at risk of changing our opinion of God based on those circumstances. I know many people who choose not to believe in a God who could allow suffering. I know many people who choose not to believe in a God who could demand obedience. So having a sound view of God, one that is rooted in the Bible, allows us to face our suffering with the assurance of hope. We know that God is faithful to us and to his promises, and that assures us that he will not abandon us. But it's often easier said than done, I think. So let's take the example of suffering with illness and see how an incomplete view of God can lead to hopelessness. Think of someone you know who's suffering with an illness. They're hearing the health and wealth gospel from all around them. They're being told, your sickness is because you haven't got enough faith. Your sickness is because you haven't prayed enough. Take it from me, this is an incredibly demoralizing and incidentally incorrect view of how God works. The danger with this view is that a person who is being told they are to blame for their illness will begin to wonder if they can have enough faith to be saved. Will God be faithful to his promise of eternal life or does their lack of faith extend to that promise as well? Finding a biblical view of God as unshakable and dedicated to your good is essential for weathering the storm of illness. We could think about how a right view of God is required to deal with our own sinfulness. Without a clear view of God, the stark realization of sinfulness is often disheartening. Let me give you an example. When I am faced with the reality that I fell to that same sin that I've been struggling with, or when I realize how ugly my sin is, I either highlight God's grace or his judgment, often missing the complexity of the balance between the two. Sometimes I wonder if God can really be satisfied. Or maybe I can only briefly appease him with my best efforts at obedience, and he's really hiding around the corner waiting to bring swift judgment. This makes me unlikely to believe that I'm really forgiven. It makes me despair. On the other hand, sometimes I think that God really couldn't be concerned with my sinfulness, 
He's really more like a grandfather than a father. He's there to give me candy and buy me toys, not to enforce the rules. He's happy as long as I'm happy, doing whatever makes me happy. This view of God is all about grace, and it lacks the right understanding that sin is serious. And this is a difficult and dangerous situation to be in when the walls come tumbling down. Having a changing view of God or a view of God's character that is not rooted in Scripture puts us at risk of feeling like God has abandoned us. Something bad happens at work, or you get in a fight with your spouse, or you're embarrassed by something your children do. We're often tempted to think that those circumstances actually reflect our self-worth, that our identity isn't actually found in Christ after all. You wonder if that fight you just had means that God doesn't really love you, because how could God love someone who just did that? And if you don't have a sure foundation in the character of God, you will certainly come to question your self-worth in the face of suffering. You'll wonder if that cancer you or your loved one is dealing with means that God's blessing is absent from your life. If he has withdrawn his promise to grant you eternal life through Christ. But if you can stand on an unwavering view of the character of a faithful God, then that wall that just fell on you, even though the pain is real, can be rebuilt. Your foundation is solid. So today we're going to consider how we can know that the foundation on which we stand is solid, giving us hope in the face of our suffering and in light of our own sinfulness. As we study the covenant with Abraham, I'm going to suggest that the character of God has a practical application for those who believe in him. I'm going to suggest that God is faithful to the promises he makes in the Bible. And because those promises are unwavering, you can have confidence, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. So in today's text, we're going to be chiefly concerned with understanding who God is. We're going to try and understand the relationship that God has with his people. What are the specific responsibilities of each? And so you don't have to wait 30 to 40 minutes, or in case you fall asleep, here's the punchline. God is our God. We are his people, and he is faithful to those promises. That's what we're going to talk about today. God is our God. We are his people, and he is faithful to those promises. The reason that matters to me is that I don't often internalize what it means to belong to God. I'm swayed by my circumstance, by the particular struggle, the particular event in my life that has caused me to identify my self-worth with it. If I really understood what it meant to belong to God, or what it meant to have God be my God, then I think I would be less susceptible to the attacks of the world. So here we go. Now, before we read our text today, let me set the scene. Last week we met Abram a polytheist from Ur. This man of no particular importance set out from the home of his family with nothing because he'd been called by God in in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God said, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in response... Abram and Sarai, his wife, stepped out in faith, awaiting the promised land and a blessing to the nations. But it doesn't take long for the reader of Genesis to wonder how the Lord will do something like this. In fact, it doesn't take long for Abraham to wonder that either. In the chapters leading up to our text today, Abram moves to Egypt because of famine. He gives his wife into Pharaoh's harem. He and his nephew's herdsmen were ready to fight over the land, making them part ways. And then Lot, his nephew, 
was kidnapped by warring kings, and Abraham was forced to launch a military assault to rescue him. Each of these happenings in the chapters leading up to our text today calls into question the specific promises of the Lord. How can Abram be granted the land when he's just given it to his nephew? How can Abram become a great nation when his wife is in the harem of Pharaoh? So in chapter 15, where we find ourselves today, the reader is presented with a dramatic tension. We know the Lord has promised to bless Abram, but we haven't seen much evidence of it yet. So this forces us, along with Abram, to ask the question, is the Lord trustworthy? Will he make good on his promises? And if yes, how and when will he accomplish it? So if you'll turn with me now to Genesis chapter 15, we'll read verses 1 through 8 and then 17, 1 through 11. If you'll stand as I read God's word. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I know? How am I to know that I shall possess it? And then chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the direct revelation of God in these two chapters serves many purposes, not the least of which is to give us some insight into how God plans to accomplish the promises set out in chapter 12. He gives us a glimpse of the blueprint that will set up the storyline for the rest of Genesis and really for the rest of the Bible. In chapter 12 of Genesis, the Lord calls Abraham and sets out three specific promises that establish Act 1, Scene 1 of Israel's history. And you can break those promises into three main sections. The first is in verse 2. I will make you a great nation. The second, in verse 7, God says to your offspring, I will give this land. And now we'll come back to each of those in turn, but for now we're going to focus our attention on the third portion of the promise. It's made to Abram in chapter 12, verse 3. It says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what in the world does God mean by this? And how does it relate to our main idea today that we should understand the character of God in order to weather the storm 
of difficult circumstances. First, I think we see it pertaining to the promises in Genesis 3, that the offspring of man will crush the head of the serpent, the one glimmer of hope that was promised after the fall. This is a continuation of that promise, but in chapter 12, there's little detail provided. So in chapter 17, God shows us what he means. He gives us a good look at his blueprint for blessing the nations when he makes perhaps the most striking promise yet. God says in chapter 17, verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God is promising to be God to Abraham and to his offspring as an everlasting covenant. And that's what I'd like us to spend some time thinking about. First, what in the world does it mean for God to be God to someone? Isn't he Abraham's God already? Isn't he God of everyone, whether we know it or not? There's a fundamental truth that God exists and that he is the Lord of creation and of everything in it. That's already been established. So it must mean something greater. It must carry with it some specific responsibility or promise to act in a certain way. The first place we look to is the prophets to help us understand what this means. Ezekiel thirty-four thirty-one says, And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. The first thing then to notice is that God promises to look after us, like a shepherd to his flock. He promises to search after those of us who are lost, to protect us from wolves. He promises to apply all of his unfathomable, unfathomable omnipotence, power, and wisdom to taking care of us, like his sheep. God is our God. Jeremiah 24, 6 through 7 says, I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. So the Lord promises to set his eyes on us for good. He will bring us back, build us up, plant us. It seems that the Lord is promising to be the foundation of our souls. He will plant us with deep roots that will withstand the storm. He will establish us, and he will support us. He will not uproot us. He will develop a relationship with us where we can give him our whole heart. And if it's possible to say this, God will give us his heart. To me, it sounds strikingly similar to, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is our God. Now, what's mind-boggling here is that God is binding himself to us. He's more powerful than we are. He has no obligation to us. Instead, we have an obligation to him as our creator, one that his people have consistently failed at. So how can God Almighty choose to identify himself with us? Well, I think an illustration of a parent and a child could be beneficial here. The father is chiefly concerned with the well-being of the child. He knows that it's important to feed him, to teach him, to help him grow up in a worthy way. In that way, the father's identity is bound to the identity of the child. When the child succeeds, so too does the father. In some mysterious way, then, God Almighty is binding himself to his people, the people that he will call to himself, to create for himself. And his glory is somehow bound up in the relationship we have with God. So this covenant that God makes with Abraham here needs to be fundamentally understood as one of lordship. God promises to practically apply himself for our good. He is not an aloof king sitting in a tower somewhere, removed from the interests of his people, but rather is an involved, loving king who is among his people, concerned about their interests. He is our king and also our father. He will provide for us and raise us up. God promises to be the God of Abraham and to be the God of his descendants. God is our God. 
One of the most poignant encounters, I think, that highlights the nature of this covenant is the renaming of Abram and Sarai. In chapter 17, verses 5 and 15, God gives our two main characters new names. He gives Abram the new name Abraham and Sarai the new name Sarah. I want you to think about the significance of this for a minute. Have you ever known anyone to change their name? Or maybe you've done it. My brother went to college, and when he was there, he changed his name from Matt to Scott, which was his middle name. He did this because he wanted to define himself in a new way. He was branching out from who he was in high school and wanted people to re-identify him with this new name. When I was younger, I went by the name Billy. But then I turned eight and uh, decided that I wanted to be more adult. So I asked people to call me Bill. I wanted to communicate something different about who I was based on my name. In the same way, the renaming of Abraham and Sarah signifies that they are redefined as members of the covenant. Abram and Sarai were polytheists from Ur, but Abraham and Sarah belong to God Almighty. Their new names give them a personal assurance that they belong to God. But more than that, their renaming gives us some insight into the nature of the covenant. The renaming assumes that the Lord has authority to rename them. It assumes that he is Lord over them. In the same way that parents give names to their children, God renames Abraham and Sarah. And in the Bible, renaming is common. When God created people, he named them man and woman. God renames Jacob Israel, and Jesus renames Simon Peter. In the Bible, renaming someone implies an authority. When God renames Abraham and Sarah, he is exercising his authority over them and giving them a symbol of their participation in the covenant. God is promising to be God to Abraham and giving Abraham a reminder that he belongs to God. Now, this covenant in Genesis 17 with Abraham is not without obligation on behalf of the recipients. This contract that God is writing with Abraham, something we call a covenant, both has an overwhelming promise from God but demands a level of submission from all those who are going to sign up for those promises. In chapter 17, verse 1, God outlines the requirements as twofold. Walk before me and be blameless. These two commands are the summary statement to which Abraham must comply before he is worthy to receive the covenant from God. Notice that it's conditional. Do these things so that I will make my covenant with you. So I'd like to explain what these obligations mean. First, walking before someone. It's different than walking with them. It's walking with someone, but under their direct supervision. Think of a father walking with his child through the forest. He stands there directing his son or daughter, making adjustments to course. The children respond because they recognize that the father is able to see things that they cannot, both the best way and dangers. They stop when he says, don't walk that way, or you'll fall off the cliff. They turn around and check and see if they're going the right way on a walk when they've run ahead. Last week, Jennifer and I were at Redner Lake, and we were on the paved part, and we saw two children running towards us. Because of the curve in the road, uh, we couldn't see their parents. So I was surprised to see them for just a second. I wondered where they were going. But then the children realized they couldn't see their parents either, and so they stopped, turned around, and waited. After a second, the parents came around the bend. The children saw them. The parents gave an approving nod, and the children took off again. These children were walking before their parents. We could also think of the image of the shepherd walking behind his flock, directing them by his calls. The sheep, with no knowledge of danger or where the best food is, respond to him and rely totally on him for their well-being. It's the same for us to walk before God. We must place ourselves under his exclusive supervision, under his lordship, guidance, and protection. It means accepting God's promise to be God. If he will apply himself to our good, then we must be ready to receive it, turning left or right as he sees fit. We do this because we acknowledge he can see things 
that we cannot. And I think it means that we'll take no direction from other gods. We're not going to worship the god of the Greek temple or the god of money or the god of superstition. We will shape the way we walk in the world based on the Lord God's direction and his direction alone. The second command is to be blameless. Now, rather than meaning to be without sin, the Hebrew word here of blameless really signifies wholeness of relationship and integrity. I think it'd be too insignificant of a promise to merely promise to act rightly here, to act perfectly. Here, God is promising to be our God. And instead of just promising to act right, this command to be blameless means that we will develop a relationship of total submission and as such be whole. Again, let's return to the image of the parent and the child. We want our children to be obedient. We want them not to hit their siblings, for example. And ultimately, we're going to be unsatisfied with mere obedience for its own sake. We want their hearts to be changed so that they don't want to hit their siblings. We want them to submit to our way of thinking because it is right. So, too, does God want us to submit to his way because it is righteous. Belonging to God is in proper order only when it is without reservation and unconditional. Let me restate the covenant responsibilities of Abraham in this way. Walk before me and be blameless. If you want to become whole, which is my desire for you, you must walk before me. You must place yourself under my exclusive supervision, under my lordship, guidance, and protection. The covenant that God makes with Abraham in chapters 15 and 17 is best understood as one of lordship. God promises to be God to Abraham and requires that Abraham acknowledge and humbly submit to the Lord's instruction. That moves us to our second main point today. If the fundamental covenant between God and Abraham is one of lordship, God will be God to Abraham, and Abraham will submit to that loving and practical advocate. Who are to be God's people? What does it mean in chapter 17, verse 7, when it says, God will establish his covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant? Who exactly are Abraham's offspring? Well, first we understand it in a genetic sense. Abraham's children and grandchildren will be heirs of these promises. Multiple times in Genesis, God extends these promises first to Isaac and then to Jacob. It is a covenant passed down through bloodlines from father to son and so on. At the beginning of Exodus, after the 400-year oppression, the covenant is extended to the nation of Israel, the descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob. In Exodus 2.24, it says, So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, bringing his people to the promised land. But we really need to understand Abraham's offspring in more than a genetic sense. We need to see the inheritance of Abraham as being passed down from generation to generation in one of spiritual descendants. Galatians 3.28 and 29 spell it out very clearly for us. Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It's by faith in Christ that we become heirs of this covenant. See what it says? There's no distinction between anyone. It's not a birthright God holds to. The promises of God are not reserved for royalty. They're not reserved for only the nation of Israel as they once were. They're not reserved to the people who can trace their family tree back to Abraham. But through Christ, we have become one before God. Anyone who believes in Christ's death and resurrection has the promises of Genesis 17. God promises to be your God, and you promise to be your people, to be his people. So let me say that again, and I want you to wake up right now if you've dozed off. This is important. When you're having lunch today with people after church, and they say to you, what was the sermon about? Your response is going to be this. It was great. 
We learn that when you believe in Christ, God promises to be your God and you promise to be his people. And when Matt asks you next week, how was the sermon? You're going to say, well, it wasn't as good as if you had been preaching it. But he did say this really interesting thing. Through faith in Christ, we obtain a spiritual inheritance promised to Abraham. God is our God and we are his people. Now, why am I saying that this is the most important thing that I'm going to say all day? Because it has dramatic implications for how we live our lives. Maybe you have found yourself in circumstances that are making you question God like we talked about earlier. Maybe your job is wearing you down and you're burnt out. You don't see how you're going to pay the bills and you can't see how the Lord is going to provide for your family. Take heart. If you have faith in Christ, the Lord has promised to work all things together for your good. He is your God, and you are his people. So acknowledge that you're suffering and unsure of how to proceed. Acknowledge that you don't know how God is going to provide for you. Cry out to him and trust that he will be faithful to his promise to you. God is your God. Maybe you're plagued by anxiety, overwhelmed by the insecurity of this world and unable to find rest. Maybe it's hard for you to sleep at night because you think of things that you have to do, and you can't stop thinking about all the ways it could go wrong. This all-too-common feeling is a device that the devil uses to keep us from resting in the promise of God. For how could we be anxious if we rested in the arms and under the protection of an all-powerful and all-loving king? He is our God, and we are his people. And maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe you're tired of arguing and tired of working towards reconciliation. Mutually submitting to one another is becoming harder, and you're growing bitter to your spouse. And maybe there is deep sin that's driving it all. Maybe there's sin that you haven't confessed to God or to your spouse. If this is you today, take heart. If you believe in Christ, you are an heir of the promise of Abraham. God is your God, and you are his people. So submit to his lordship. Walk before him and die to yourself as Christ did. Pick up that burdensome cross of loving your spouse without the need to be right. Pick it up and run after your spouse with all that you have. Run to Christ together. And in him, you will remember that you are heirs of a spiritual inheritance greater than any other inheritance. God will be your God, and you are his people forever into eternal life. When you do that, the burden of the cross you carry will become light, and joy will come back into your marriage. Maybe you're in a spiritually dry place. You haven't felt uplifted by the Lord lately. You haven't prayed or read your Bible. You haven't been to church. You're feeling unfulfilled in many areas of your life, and you wish you could return to that emotional high that comes from a right walk with the Lord. If that's you this morning, be free. Be free because when you have faith in Christ, you have an inheritance that is greater than any other inheritance. God is your God, and you are his people. Submit your life once again to, his, to God, to his statutes. Confess that you've not found joy in him, and then set out to walk before him. Listen to him shepherding you calling to you to walk in a manner worthy of what he's called you to. If this is you this morning, free yourself from the misconception that emotions are the bedrock of faith. Your emotions change, and if you're anything like me, they change from minute to minute. One minute, I'm uplifted by my success in faith. I read the Bible every day this week. Yes! Then one minute, I'm discouraged by my sinfulness. The up and down of emotions is sinking sand, and to stand on them perpetuates hopelessness. But take heart. Take heart if you believe in Christ, you are standing on a firm foundation, that your inheritance is not in question. 
God has promised to apply his unfathomable power and grace to work in your life for good. So if you're feeling spiritually dry, cling to the promise that God will not forsake you. And with the help of this community of inheritors, this community of fellow heirs, this community of believers in Christ, inch yourself closer to God. Crawl towards him. It will turn into a walk, and it will turn into a sprint. And maybe this morning you're wondering if God can really forgive you for all of your sins. That one really big sin that you can't talk to anybody about. That one really big sin that makes you worse than everybody in this room, and if we knew about it, we wouldn't talk to you anymore. If that's you today, take heart. There is nothing you can do to earn the inheritance of Abraham. Everyone who comes to faith in Christ is equally separated from God. In fact, faith in Christ isn't for the righteous. If you are perfect, you are not eligible. If you haven't sinned, stand up, leave, stop listening. But if you're a sinner like me with deep scars in your heart, if you're a sinner who continues to fall to the repeated temptations that you face, turn yourself back to Christ. Believe in him. Confess his death and resurrection and believe that he is the Lord. Then you will become God's people and the Lord Almighty will be your God. But now I wonder if some of you are feeling like Abraham did at the end of chapter 12. He was given these great promises and then was found in the face of immense struggle. He wondered, how, Lord, are you going to fulfill those promises that you made to me? I wonder if some of you don't doubt the promises of God. So I think today's text points us in another direction as well. It answers the question of whether or not we can trust the promises of God. So let's return to the text and see why we can trust that God will be faithful to that which he has promised. I think there's four reasons. One, God promised it on himself in the form of a covenant. Two, Abraham believed him and acted immediately and dramatically on that promise. Three, the Old Testament records in the history of the nation of Israel God's faithfulness to his promises. And four, we have been given the Holy Spirit, which testifies in our hearts to the faithfulness of God. So let's look at them one by one. If you have your Bible open, turn back to Genesis 15, 8. The faithful Abraham asks God, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He's meaning the land here. Note that this measure of questioning or complaint isn't incompatible with faithfulness. It's not as if Abraham's trust in God is reliant on his understanding how God will complete his promises. There's a difference between doubt that God exists and crying out to him because you are in a difficult circumstance and need to know how to proceed. So in response to Abraham's question, the Lord binds himself to Abraham through this ancient ritual. On its face, the ritual is strange to us and doesn't carry much weight. But to Abraham, it means everything. Starting in verse 9, this ritual is described. The Lord asks Abraham to gather animals. Incidentally, the same animals that will be used in the Old Testament sacrificial system. He asks, them to cut the, he asks Abraham to cut them in half. Then, a burning pot and a flaming torch pass through the animals that were cut in half. And the Lord confirms the promise to give Abraham and descendants the land, also predicting the exile in Egypt at the same time. This ritual is one that Abraham would have understood well, and it would have given him great confidence in the Lord. In this ritual, people who were party to the covenant would walk through the items at stake and thus swear by those items to uphold the covenant. So in this instance, the Lord is represented by the burning pot and the flaming torch, and he alone passes through the animals. Thus he is swearing by himself, by all of his holiness and righteousness, that he will keep the promises made to Abraham. 
I don't really think there's an equivalent customer in our culture to this ritual. But the best analogy that I could come up with would be a handshake. In our culture, if you shake someone's hand, you're guaranteeing that you'll be faithful to hold up your end of the bargain. But uh, that's sort of an inadequate analogy because this covenantal promise with Abraham isn't just any handshake. Um, So I want to take the example to its extreme to illustrate the point. Let's say that you're buying a house and the inspection goes badly, but you still want the house. The owners say to you, don't worry, we got it, we'll fix everything, no problem. Well, you wouldn't really believe them, would you? And uh, maybe if you shook their hand, that would be a start. But if they shook your hand, signed a contract, had it notarized, went before a judge who told them that if it wasn't perfect, he would fine them $10,000 and put them in jail, well, now you'd feel a little more comfortable about it, wouldn't you? It's because the results of this contract would be enforceable. If something went wrong, the judge would be able to deal with the negative outcome. So when Abraham says to God, Lord, I believe that you will do it, but I need an assurance, how am I to know that you will do it? The Lord is gracious. He extends his hand to Abraham, and by completing this ancient ritual, binds himself to his covenant promises. And so what I say to you today is this, do not fear. The Lord promised to do it, and he staked himself and all of his glory on it. Believe it. If you believe in Christ, he is your God, and you are his people. The second way we know uh, God will be faithful to these covenantal promises is that Abraham believed it and acted on what the Lord had promised him. Turn to Genesis 17, 10 and 11. It says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So after Abraham had heard this great covenant, that God would be his God and that he and his offspring would be his people, God required an external sign of the converted heart. He required that the heirs of this covenant be circumcised. In Genesis chapter 17, 23, it says, Then Abraham and his whole household were circumcised that very day. Ninety-nine-year-old Abraham that day was circumcised because he believed the Lord. He did not delay in his action. Third, the history of the Old Testament records the faithfulness of God to Israel. He brings his people out of Israel into the promised land. He makes them into hundreds of thousands of people. He is faithful to them, even when they are faithless. To show you this, I'd like to go back to the first two promises made in chapter 12 to Abram to make him a nation and to grant him the land. I want to show you that the Old Testament records these promises as being fulfilled and that we can see that one of the overarching themes of the Old Testament is that God is faithful despite his people's recurrent faithlessness. Chapter 15 opens with Abram asking God the exact question we're dealing with. God, how are you going to fulfill your promise to me when I don't even have a son? God, are you going to be faithful to the promise you made to me? God responds, again, giving some insight into the blueprint for how he plans to accomplish his promises. God says, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. In the custom of the day, if Abraham didn't have a son, his possessions would have passed to one of his chief servants, in this case, Eliezer of Damascus. So here the Lord promises that the way he will make Abraham into a great nation is through his direct descendants. Then in chapter 17, God makes his promise even more evident and more amazing. God promises to give this heir through Sarai. And that in addition to Isaac, kings of people shall come from her. So now we see that this promise in chapter 12, I will make you a great nation, is going to be played out as this. I will give you a son from your barren wife who is 90 years old, and she shall become nations, and kings of people shall come from her. It's ridiculous on the face of it, isn't it? But the Lord did it. Isaac was born, then Jacob, then his 12 sons. Fast forward to Exodus, and you see that the nation of Israel is 600,000 people strong. 
The Lord God was faithful to that promise. So what about the land? In chapter 15, verses 13 and following, the Lord says, Know for certain that you and your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. To your offspring I give this land, from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the, Ken- uh, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So not only do we find out exactly which land the Lord is promising in chapter 12, but we're also told of how it will happen. Israel will have to go down to Egypt and suffer a period of slavery for 400 years before God will grant them the promised land. This land grant also sets up the wandering in the wilderness and the great exile from Israel and Babylonian captivity. Much of the Old Testament narrative revolves around the people of Israel trying to obtain, then losing again, this promised land. So let me give you one more text from Nehemiah chapter 9 to drive home the point. Verses 7 and 8 say this, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. The Old Testament records the history of the nation of Israel, one that is rife with exile and faithlessness to the Lord. But despite these transgressions, the Lord fulfills his covenant. He gives the descendants of a nomadic man a great and fruitful land in which to live. And he makes a nation from a 90-year-old barren woman. If he's faithful to these things, we can have confidence that he will be faithful to the remainder of his covenant. He is our God, and we are his people. So the fourth way that the Lord confirms this promise to us is by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 8, 8 through 11 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God promises us that the Holy Spirit will be given to us to testify to this covenant. And there is no more gracious gift than that of the indwelling Spirit of God Almighty to intercede for us and to give us the confidence that the Lord will complete the work that he started in us. The fundamental covenant between God and his people has not changed. He found it right to redeem his people from their own sinful desires. And through Abraham and his faith in the Lord God, all the peoples of the earth have been blessed. We've been blessed because we are heirs of the promise that God made to Abraham. The promise to be our God and for us to be his people. The promise that has been fulfilled by a new mediator, Jesus Christ, and confirmed by the work of the Holy Spirit. So wherever you are this morning in the depths of despair, wondering if you really believe, or whether you're feeling the benefits of living in light of your inheritance. When you believe in Jesus Christ, God is your God, and you are counted among his people. Do not fear, for the Lord God is faithful to the thousandth generation. So whatever circumstance is driving you to despair, whatever circumstance makes you question the nature of God, whatever circumstance makes you question your salvation, take heart. For the response to these promises is the same. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Believe in him and you will receive the new covenant. God is your God and you are his people. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, make it so. Give us hearts that see you clearly. Give us hearts that see that you are faithful and that you have promised to be our God. And through faith in Christ, we promise to be your people. We pray that our hearts would be changed by this. 
and that we would be made more like you. Thank you, God, for the promises that you made to Abraham and that you were faithful to fulfill them. God, we so desperately need you. We thank you that you are gracious and that you are merciful. It's in your name we pray. Amen.